I wanted to start by um, one, just thanking you so much for staying. If you had any impulse to go at any point, I really want to thank you for staying. I also want to honor your impulse to go. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Yeah. And this, so much of what this practice and what Prajnaparamita and the teachings that I'll be talking about today, the core teachings, the Four Noble Truths, they're about holding tension, finding there's often two polarities, there's two truths. And we're noticing them and we're feeling that tension and we're staying in this tension, we're building capacity to be with tension and identifying what those tensions are so we don't get uh, uh, trapped in one or the other, but hold the tension of both until wisdom arises. And so I genuinely want to thank those of you, really, if there's any, if there's been any impulse to go, I want to thank that impulse and I also want to thank think the part of you and the wisdom in you that's that has you stay so much of what we're learning to do here is we're learning to stay and we're also learning to rest back and notice and witness what's happening here and not just what's happening here for us but what's happening here collectively. Because what we start to wake up to is one of the three characteristics, one of the core teachings is called anatta. And it's the truth of our interdependence, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our interbeing. We start to wake up to the truth that we are actually everything that exists but we're walking within one position. And especially if we come, if our positionality is from dominant culture, dominant culture meaning those, those places in culture that hold power. So like, you know, we can all attest because of our direct experience that in dominant culture, males hold more power than females in dominant culture, not in every situation, not in every family, not in every economic, you know, situation, but in the dominant culture, males hold more power than women. Do you agree? Yeah. And we know the impact of that, right? We've, we've experienced the impact of that. It doesn't mean it happens across the board. It means it happens collectively. It's a collective thing. And so part of what I want to invite us to do tonight um, is just to look around the room and notice who's here and who's not here. Just look around, just who's here and who's not here. And even by looking, we don't always know because what we see is what we're perceiving. We actually have to come in contact to learn if what we're perceive, what we think we see is actually what we're seeing. But just through the seeing, just noticing who's here and who's not here. And then from the point of view of wisdom, this prajna quality, we start to look at what are the causes and conditions that brought that to be. What are the causes and conditions that bring about this arising of this sangha, this community at this time? And part of what dominant culture does is dominant culture wants to make it about the individual. It kind of like um, we we're very, we live in a very individualistic society. I was blessed to um, 
have the privilege, the deep privilege of living in an indigenous um, culture for a year and a half. I lived on a small remote island um, in the South Pacific with only 700 people and uh, lived in a, a small hut that my neighbors built for me and was only one of three Westerners on the island. The people that I lived with that were so generous to share their culture with me did not see themselves as individuals. They didn't even think that the bowl that was at their house actually belonged to them. Their property was communal. So we have been conditioned in this culture. It's very individualistic. But actually, this insight of interdependence, this insight of anatta that we can experience when we slow down here says that we are actually the collective. We are actually the whole. And so part of what I want to do tonight is um, through a short story of my own, share a personal story of my own that I've, I've never shared before, actually. It came to me this morning. It's quite, it's, it's not that long, but it's quite tender for me. Um, but I wanted to share an individual story and then I want to teach you about the Four Noble Truths, this way of seeing that is, it's the core teaching in all of the Buddhist, all of the Buddhist um, lineages. It's the main teaching. And then from there, look at cultural systems that are impacting all of us through the point of view of anatta and through the point of view of interdependence as a way of opening up to our collective self and being able to look at our situation in this moment, both as an individual and from the individual point of view, we need to take responsibility of our position. And also from the collective, seeing what are the causes and conditions that have brought this particular situation that I'm in right now, whatever's happening to my heart, mind, my body, my, um, yeah, my heart, mind, my body, what are the causes and conditions that are systemic, that are contributing to it. And then probably tomorrow morning, I'll teach you some ways to work with some of the emotions that come with being a human in these systems. Because what I was seeing in groups and talking with my esteemed colleagues is there was a lot of grief going on today. There was a lot of mourning going on today. There was a lot of tears going on today. And we were all excited. We were like, great, let those run. <laughs> I'm like, bring in more Kleenex boxes. It's actually a note that I've had that I keep forgetting to write to the managers. I'll have to, <laughs> we need more Kleenex boxes <laughs> because we want those tears to run. We want those tears to run. You don't need to go look. If they're not there, don't look for them. But you know, we have this conditioning like, oh, the tears are coming. And it's like, oh, don't cry in the hole. Someone might feel compassion for me. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, this is a place where it's normative. We want you. If those tears come and you feel that contraction, we want you to let that go. And if you know like it's going to be welling or something or you really feel like you need to well, and then, you know, you can take a breath, look up, breathe with it, and at the walking period, go to a tree and feel the weight of the tree and feel the connection with the land and then really let it go. Really let it go. This is, this is a safe place to feel what's arising as it's arising and let it move through you. Let it move through you. I was talking with someone today about how part of this tru truth of change and anatta and dukkha change, this interdependence and, and dukkha, which I'll talk more about tonight. It's like we are a river. We are a rushing river. And as the emotions and the thoughts and the images are coming, we're just staying with, staying steady and allowing them to flow. Allowing them to flow. Allowing them to flow. Allowing them to flow. Seeing more and more and more this insight that it's not personal. We're responsible, but it's not personal. Okay. So there's the frame. Um, a few other things to note about this. So 
there was a question that came up earlier this morning, which I really appreciated around like, what are the qualities? Something I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not saying exactly what the question is. It's just what it evoked in me something about like, what are the qualities of the feminine that I want to embody? And I just want to speak a little bit to this term, masculine, feminine, male, female, and acknowledge that, um, Anytime we categorize, you know, male, female, masculine, feminine, that is a duality that excludes some. You know, so I teach um, a lot on goddesses and the Four Noble Truths from the point of view of goddesses, and, um, and I keep those open to all genders. And it's very powerful for male-bodied people who identify with feminine energy to be invited into a space where that, that is primacy, right? But for other people, saying masculine and feminine, that can create a sense of not belonging because they, they're feeling more a sense of neither. So I just want to acknowledge that that's our reality. This diversity is not a problem. It's our reality. And for me personally, I'm in a deep dialogue talking with a lot of people about how to do this well, and I'm not there yet. And so on a woman's retreat and trying to talk about certain energies and, and um, gender, I will be using language at times that does separate. And it's because I don't have a better language yet. And if you have feedback for me on that, I welcome it. I welcome you to give it more towards the end of the retreat, just so that, you know, you don't be thinking about feedback for me. You can just know I welcome it. I want it. And I want, I don't want you to have to hold the burden of that during the retreat. And I ask for your forgiveness in advance around that. I just, I, I feel like I want to talk about them and I know my language isn't, isn't skillfully as partially the, 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 the complexity of language and being able to name the unnameable. So, um, so yeah, so I wanted to tell you a little, um, story and we'll see, it's my first time telling this story. So we'll see if I can weave this story through everything else I want to talk about. So when I was five, my, um, well, I guess, let me, let me back up a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit more about where I stand in the, in the complexity of things. So I'm white, um, cisgender, which means that I um, am, was born in a female body and I identify as a female. That's what cisgendered means, for those of you that don't know. Um, I walk with heterosexual privilege, although I'm in a questioning moment in my life. So I'm um, yeah, that the privilege is slightly changing, but not much. And, you know, I walk with the power of it. Um, I'm what I would consider class mobile. So I was raised in blue collar Detroit, although my parents were both college educated. And, um, largely because of my whiteness and my education, I was able to, uh, Although I still identify at my root as blue collar, um, I, in my economic situation, it's complex, simple <laughs> and complex, but I, I'm able to move amongst different classes. So I think of myself as, I think, in a class mobile. I'm most, I'm able-bodied, although I um, have quite a bit of chronic pain. So I, I know about working with pain and, and walk with a lot of fear about the future in my body, although right now walk with the privilege of being able-bodied. So I'm giving you this uh, lens because it's the lens with which this story is coming from, right? And it would also tie into how um, I'm going to invite us to look at the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so um, here's the story. It's my second memory, my life. Uh, I was raised Catholic, and we're at church. There's a big festival. And something's happened, and everyone's upset. And it turned out that my mom had fallen 
and there was a, an ambulance there and taking her away. And then I went to my friend's house and was playing and my dad came and picked me up and um, my brother and I up. And uh, he was taking us to go get fast food, which was a huge treat for us. So I was very excited to get fast food. But on the way, we saw an ice cream truck. And in that moment, I we went to go get ice cream from the ice cream truck. And... Um, the ice cream truck was closed and my dad couldn't get me ice cream. And I was livid. <laughs> livid. I mean, I remember this anger still. I mean, it's like, it's like living in my body. <laughs> and those women that know me are like, they know that anger. <laughs> like, they've seen it. So I was livid. And the next memory is of me running up the stairs just in tears crying because he wasn't able to get me that ice cream cone. So, you know, as I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about, um, so what are the conditions that were going on there? It was the early 80s. My dad was uh, a tool and die maker for Ford Motor Company. He, at that point, had two young children. They had just bought a house two years prior, and he was laid off. It was in the beginning of the recession. For those of you, um, uh, maybe some there's some Detroit people in here, so you know Detroit is extremely class-divided. And when we're, it's like, especially in the blue collar area where I grew up, it's um, like, it's the first place for a recession to hit and it's the last place for it to go. Um, and so he was not in a good space. And now his wife was at a hospital. And when I reflected on that, I was like, Wow. Here's what I think happened. I think that in that moment, the veil opened and my dad's vulnerability, I felt the vulnerability of my father in that moment as a five-year-old. The vulnerability of his situation, the vulnerability that he wasn't, he, he, didn't, he didn't know in that moment if he was going to be able to take care of his family any longer. He kind of realized what I would say like the first noble truth, he was in a deep ouch. And in the kind of crisis of the moment as a five-year-old, I woke up to that ouch. I woke up to his vulnerability and it was too much for my five-year-old to feel clearly. And I went into an utter rage. And basically, I think you know, there's a lot of causes and conditions that went into that. But I think in that moment, what I decided was that, well, those two, mom and dad, they can't take care of me. I'm going to do this myself. And I walked with that view for a really long time. And think what this path offers is another way. It offers another way. So I want to talk to you. Yeah. One more point is like one of what one of my teachers talks about. He says, as we're, as she says, as we're getting in touch with like true love, with divine love, we often hit a point of extreme vulnerability as we start to get closer to divine love, to self-love, to deep, to deep, like source love, we often hit a point of extreme vulnerability. And so the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is this truth of, it's often called the truth of suffering. And it's on the second, like the second side, if you want to like follow along with it, it's on the, not the circle part, but the second part. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. 
And it's, I think fundamentally what the Buddha was pointing to is, is what my father was experiencing that day. It's just like, whoa, it is hard being human. I'm not in control. Anything can happen in any moment. And that's like a lot to sit with, right? It's a lot to sit with. And so what we're doing in this path is we're opening more and more and more and more and more to this raw vulnerability and to this uncertainty and to this truth of change. And what I like about um, thinking about the first noble truth from this point of view is it makes the second noble truth, this truth of resistance, this truth of um, like there's a path that creates more suffering, completely understandable. Like who wants to feel that raw vulnerability? Who wants to feel that they're not in control? Who wants to feel like that's a training in our culture? Right? So the second noble truth that what we do and what I love about getting still and being on these retreats is we can see this over and over and over again. You like walk into the lunch line and all the food is not your what you can eat or something and it's just like, ouch. And it hurts. Like you, and you actually can feel like, oh, the food I want isn't there. You know, it's like you feel that, ouch. And then you feel that, oh, I'm okay. I'll be okay. You know, like you just, you can feel like first noble truth, second noble truth. Or same thing, like you start to, you start to, something more deep happens, like the memory of my father. And that, and I can feel that just anger. And then I can also feel the vulnerability. Right? And just see it moment by moment by moment by moment by moment, how this armor that comes up to protect us from this rawness, from this vulnerability, from this truth of change and not being in control. The other thing that Tanha does, or this resistance, the second noble truth, it divides into right, wrong, good, bad. It's polarity. It's fix this word, uh, fixation. I really like this word fixation. I've been given the feedback recently that it's pathologizing. To me, it doesn't sound pathologizing. It's like, it's like what it does. But so uh, what my friend and I came up with was like, Tanha is like a, um, a pain with a magnet. Like it's a magnetic pain. There's a, there's a way that like, like, the first noble truth is just pain. It's like, okay, it's pain. This hurts. And the tanha is like a magnet where it just like draws you to it over and over and over again. It just won't, kind of won't stop. Do you, can you feel that? Yeah? Do you get a sense of that? Yeah. It's like, no, they're wrong. No, I'm right. No, this is good. No, this is bad. No, you know, or just like it just keeps drawing you back, drawing you back, drawing you back, drawing you back. So the third noble truth is the truth of freedom that we can see in the here and now. And this truth of, or another way of thinking is like the truth of release, that you can see like a thought and then you see the thought let go. Or you are feeling reactivity towards something and then the mind sees actually clearly what's happening and it just drops away. Does anyone, has anyone had that experience? Have you seen things fall away? Yeah. So this is like, you can see it moment by moment. This is what Anna was pointing to last night, how like it's right here. We're right here. All of this can be validated right here, right now. A really powerful example of this for me was um, sitting with my clinical director a few years ago when I was in training to be a psychotherapist and she was talking about how she thought the nature of human beings was competitive. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, no, no, this is the nature of human beings is competitive. And I think ultimately, you know, good and evil are just equal in all of us. And I was like, 
no, like the nature of life is love. And she's like, you're a hippie. And I'm like, no, I'm not a hippie. I'm like, I've seen it over and over and over again. I mean, I've literally sat for months on end looking at causes and conditions and seeing over and over again that their nature is love and emptiness. Like, I know that. If, if, if reality starts to show me something else, I'll let it go and I'll learn something else. But I have just seen that over and over and over again. So it's unshakable in me. It's not that I can live it 100%, but you, it's, it's rock solid confidence in me because it's ver- that's verified faith. So many times I've come, on, come into this room angry at someone and by the end of the retreat, I just see all the reactivity and all the self-protection and all the, and I see that they're me and I'm them. And what I was really wanting was love. What I was really wanting was connection. What I was really wanting was understanding. And that I had to sit and be with, or what I really needed to do was protect myself and I didn't protect myself, so then I was vulnerable to something, and now I've learned more to protect myself. You know, there's some wisdom, some wisdom that wasn't online, that through sitting and being with and feeling the pain, that wisdom comes to fruition. But there was no evil that was ultimately the root. It was love that was the root. And it was misunderstanding, it was thinking that I was the center of the universe, when really, I'm connected. I was always connected. I just forgot. So that's a verified faith in me over and over and over again. And that's this truth of freedom, this truth of release, this truth of our inner connection. And then the fourth noble truth is the same way that our, um, that there's a way towards more suffering. So we have that vulnerability, that ouch, what one of my, Uh, good friends and I are going to be teaching on in October on the sacred wound, October through December. We have this sacred wound. We have, we all have these wounds. Like for me, like I was telling in that story, it's this betrayal in the masculine, like the masculine betrayed me, the masculine failed me. There's this fundamental way. I just felt like men could not show up the way that I needed them to. And so I have to do it myself. Now, the path to suffering was to believe that narrative and to live it out and feel angry and like a victim and be coercive and be coerced and do all sorts of, you know, just be in a game, like just a, just a path of suffering leading to more suffering, leading to more suffering, to more suffering. The same way there's a path to more suffering, there's a path to more freedom. And the fourth, the fourth noble truth is that we have a choice, that we can choose in any moment through mindful awareness and greater wisdom, we can choose where we go, where we head. And that's the essence of what we're doing here at Spirit Rock is we are empowering you through mindful awareness and teachings that give you more and more clarity to be able to look at how reality is unfolding moment to moment so you can choose that which is going to cause less harm, more kindness, and more letting go. And this is where, you know, Anna spoke to the mindfulness movement and um, there's a real um, uh, longing for those of us that are, those of us, and I include those of us, you know, here, that understand the, the, the power of mindfulness and the power of concentration. It is, it is a superpower. And if you take this power without wisdom, we're going to keep going in the direction that we're going. So we want to empower this mindful awareness with deep wisdom and commitment to non-harm. And that's what we're training in here, is mindful, intuitive awareness with a deep commitment to non-harm, tenderness, compassion. And in order to do that, we have to be looking at cultural and systemic factors. Because our economic system is based in greed. 
Our economic system is based in the second noble truth. Our economic system says, accumulate more and you'll be happier. We know that that isn't true from our practice. You, if, even if you've just been here two days, you know that isn't true. That's what our economic system says. Our social system says white people should have more power than people of color. That is not accurate and it's not sustainable. And it's causing and has caused innumerable amounts of suffering. Our current uh, government says it is okay to not listen to the 148 treaties that we have with Native Americans. We have 148 treaties with Native Americans that are not honored. We are sitting on stolen land right now as we speak. That is based in the second noble truth. That is not based in wisdom. So we... So in order to be able to move forward as a collective, as women, we are in this incredible position, especially as white women. Because as white women, we hold, we're in this interesting, not, I shouldn't even say especially as white women. So check me on that. I'll finish the thought and then I'll go, I'll, I'll flush it out. I'm speaking from the position of a white woman, clearly. So as a white woman, I feel the privilege of both being in a position where I know what it's like to have the power of whiteness in dominant culture, and then I also know what it's like to not have power from the position of a female. So I both understand oppressive forces, and I also understand what it's like to have uh, power forces, right? And I know most of us walk with that privilege. Most of us walk with certain privilege and certain not, not areas of privilege. So, yeah, it's, um, let me just get back on track because I, yeah, that wasn't totally clear for me if I was speaking from a place of like collective or just my own position. So I need to <laughs> come back in center. So what I want to do is um, look at these systems or levels of oppression so that as we're practicing over the next couple of days, we can be looking at our own positionality and seeing, looking at the stories and the situations that are happening in our own lives and be able to look at them in a broader, look at them from a broader perspective if you're not familiar with this. And if you're familiar with this, um, maybe you've already been thinking in this way or what I've heard from other people who have really been in this conversation for a long time is that it's actually helpful to connect the term oppression with the second noble truth, that there's been something empowering in that um, connection. And so, I'm offering it in that spirit. So the first is uh, these four levels of oppression and change. And I do like to use the word oppression partially synonymous with tanha. That um, when we're looking at levels of oppression, that it's this force, it's this like, it's this, um, this fixation based in greed. And it's not only levels of oppression, but it's also levels of change. That when we see this, we have more capacity to be in collaboration with and not in just uh, unconscious relationship of power or submission, right? Because if it's unconscious, then we just walk with it. But if we're in relationship to it, then we have more choice about being in, in collaboration with each other and within the systems, so the first is personal, um, and that's your pers- clearly your personal values, your personal beliefs, your personal feelings. So a lot of what you're probably seeing on the cushion is your personal values, your personal w- beliefs, your personal feelings. Um, 
The second is interpersonal. So looking at like actions, behaviors, language. You're not doing as many actions here as you normally do in life, but you are acting. And also we have an intrapersonal relationship with ourselves. Like I think of the inner critic as internalized, like an internalized relationship. So I include that in there, the inner critic, thinking of the inner critic in this way. And what are the cultural forces and systemic forces that have helped to condition this internal, this internalized critic? And then moreover, what are the conditions and what are the, the systemic conditions that can bring about uh, voices that are non-oppressive, that are compassionate, that are tender, that are kind, that are uh, liberative? The third is institutional, looking at rules, policies, practices, and procedures. So um, this could be like if you have something coming up with work. And um, I was working with a woman who's a professor, and she uh, was feeling very judged by her students. And through looking through this lens, she was really able to see the systemic forces that were contributing to that while she was taking personal responsibility, thinking if she just did a better job, she would no longer be judged. Where she saw there were institutional practices within her organization and cultural, cultural factors um, within the culture that were contributing to the students being more judgmental of her than other teachers. And it really brought a level of release and a sense of being able to work within the system with more choice and more power. Ultimately, she ended up leaving the system. But um, the process was very empowering for her when she didn't feel like so much at, the, at just the, um, the kind of like the, just at the whim of it, where she could see it more clearly. And then finally is cultural. So looking at, like through a cultural lens. What are our cultural views around beauty, truth, what's normal, what's right? Many of us have been talking about and checking in about just ideas around female beauty, right? And what dominant culture says about that. Looking around age, what dominant culture says about age and women around age. I had the same living in the South Pacific where... Um, it was so inspiring for me. The women there would, I would often take pictures of them and um, give them to them. And I'll never forget the first time I gave a woman a picture and she just smiled so big and then showed it to all her friends. I was like, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to judge yourself? Say what's wrong with the picture? I'd never seen a woman do that before. cultural conditioning. It's not our nature to judge our bodies. It's just not. I mean, that's radical. So, looking at it from a cultural lens. So the idea here is that when we can see what's happening from a cultural lens, then the anger that I felt at my father for not being able to get me the ice cream. I can stop directing at him and I can start directing that anger at the systems. Right? That's a huge shift. So instead of directing the anger at my dad, I can, think, I can look at our economic system and see this economic system has him in a position where he's, you know, a 30-year-old dad not able to provide for his family. And that's, again, radical. So much of individualistic training is to look at the individual and direct our guilt at ourselves, our anger at ourselves, our shame at ourselves, or vice versa. Find another to blame, you know, and... I'm just getting real with you guys, like all the energy we're directing at the White House right now. What are the causes and conditions that brought that to be? 
What are the causes and conditions that brought that to be? Us. We are the causes and conditions that brought that to be collectively and those that have come before. And that isn't a blame, it's just reality, right? So if we can direct our energy at the systems, we can direct our thoughts at the systems, then we have much more agency, power, choice, vitality to start to work towards what we love. Start to do that which we love to, to affect change. So for me, hearing this and looking at this, there's basically one thing to do, and that's grieve. <laughs> do you know? Notice we're not laughing a lot during this talk, you know? It's like, this is heartbreaking. We're sitting here embedded in an economic system that's based in greed with, you know, ableism, white supremacy, genocide of indigenous people. You know, it's like heterosexism, all these things. It's so sad. So... I really encourage you to grieve, to let it flow. Um, I'm going to put some water on the altar when I get around to it. I've had it in my mind for 12 hours and it's not quite happening. It's a lot going on uh, here, but I'm going to put some water on the altar. In one of the communities I work with, we always put fire and water on the altar to symbolize this like, fire to symbolize the purification, this capacity for change and transformation, and water to symbolize flow, change, motion, transformation. And so I'm going to put water on the altar. And for those of you that want it any time, you know, if grief is moving or you just want to, you know, just put it on your body and put it on your, um, the back of your head, your heart, any area in your body that needs healing, just pray over it. It's a long history of, in my um, ethnicity, Celtic women. Women were the um, stewards of the wells. We would watch over the wells, take care of the wells, until the violence came. And then the water was taken from us. We can reclaim it. That is part of our history. And I think we know that in ourselves. Ourselves feel it. And that's part of people were saying today, like, I'm just crying and I don't know why. I'm just crying and I don't know why. And it's like pre-verbal sometimes. It's just like tears are coming and you don't even know why. It's like ancestral, pre-verbal. You don't have to know why. You just have to, like encourage it to just keep flowing and keep going and keep keep riding, keep trusting to the degree that you're able. And if you don't trust, that's welcome too. And there's a lot of reasons to not trust based in these cultural forces. So trusting and not trusting, feeling safe and not safe are all welcome here. Every one of yours experiences is welcome here. In fact, we need all of your experiences. And we actually need much more of our experiences in this room to actually represent the wisdom that's needed to really do what's needed to be done at this time. So, So the essence of what we're doing is we're looking from the individual perspective. So whatever's arising in your, your, in your body, heart, mind, from the point of view of the Four Noble Truths, and particularly the fourth truth, it's the path to non-suffering. We're orienting from the point of view of something called right view or wise view. 
So what's wise view? Wise view is that this grasping leads to more suffering. It's what we've been talking about. And that seeing, we want to put on our Dharma lens. It's like we are like, we've been conditioned with these sunglasses that are kind of like, grasp, don't feel the pain. If I just do something else, this pain will go away and I'm going to like go on to nirvana and have a beautiful bliss retreat or whatever. You know, we have some idea of how things should be. And if we just get it right, that will happen. Or something's happening and we're just going to push it away. Or something's happening and we're just going to space out. Like these ways that we kind of hedge around reality. We hedge around the first noble truth. What, the, what wise view invites us to do is put on Dharma lens. So what's a Dharma lens? There's three characteristics in Dharma lens. One is change. That everything is changing. So to reflect on change. It's good you reflect, it's like people were talking about feeling peace. Like you feel peace. It's like, this might change. This is not might, it's, this will change. Like, enjoy it. Like, really, like, what does this feel like in your body? Uh, invite the breath to deepen. Really take in the resource of the peace. Something's challenging. Remind yourself, change. This will change. So you reflect on this truth of change. This is putting on your Dharma lens, like really seeing the change, noticing the change. One of the things one of our teachers says, um, Bhikkhu Analyo, he talks about keep, what was they keep constantly watching change. You just keep constantly watching change. Now, when you watch change, there's often something like that. Yeah? When you watch change, sometimes you can experience loss too. There can be like a sense of loss. So this second noble truth, right? Third or first noble truth, pain, dukkha exists. But that's one of the other characteristics. One of the other Dharma lenses is that there is pain here. There is that ouch. There is that vulnerability. And within that, you haven't done anything wrong. You haven't done anything wrong to feel this pain. It's just how it is here. It's constantly changing. There's pain. And there's also an incredible amount of joy. But with the pain, you haven't done anything wrong. And the third is this truth of our interdependence. So to be reflecting on, you know, the when you eat a piece of lettuce, how many people, how many people came together to bring you that piece of lettuce? So many people. Just for you to sit here, just so many people went in all the people, your friends, family that supported you, the economic system, which is, you know, based in greed, it's also supporting us. There's good things about the economic system too. So it's like just appreciating, 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 constantly looking for beauty, looking for gratitude, looking for um, or cultivating gratitude, looking for beauty. And then noticing this, this tanha, noticing this grasping anytime. And when you notice it, you might see that all immediately there might be shame, like I shouldn't be grasping. And I really want you in that moment to remember, no, no, this is an insight into the second noble truth. Anytime you see it, you're training in knowing it. It's actually exciting because the more you know it, the more you're going to be able to discern what's causing suffering and what's leading to freedom. Because that's ultimately then what we're doing is we're sharpening this capacity of our internal sword to be able to choose what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom. So when you really know what this feels like, and I'm sorry that you have to go through it, you know, I'm sorry that you have to sit here and really feel it. And I'm also not, I'm so glad you're sitting here feeling it. I always tell the story of being on retreat. I, my first like month-long retreat and I fought with the same person around the same fight every day for 30 days. And I won every time. I mean, it was ridiculous. But by the end of the retreat, I was so burned out from the fight that I actually like, you know, finally <laughs> reconciled with a friend. 
So it's like I sat with the pain of you have, we have to sit with the pain of our past actions and really learn the consequences of them. So when you can see that, then you're going to have more capacity to be able to discern that which causes suffering and that that's what causes freedom. And so that's the question. Like some people are asking, like, do I go sit or do I go to the woods? You know, do I sit outside or do I sit in here? We can't answer that for you. You can only answer that for yourself. The last thing any of us are trying to do is train you in being good girls. <laughs> that's the last thing we need. I mean, we've been educated in a system that's based in tanha. It's based in domination. It's ba- most of us, not everyone, but a lot of you, myself, was in our education system did not, was not teaching me about wisdom and freedom. You know, it was educating me into something else. It's not, that's not the only thing. There were tens of good people and, you know, a lot of good intentions. It's not only that, but part of it was that. And so decondi- we're deconditioning out of that here. And one of the way forwards is this question. So am I going to sit outside? Am I going to sit inside? Going in and asking yourself, what's going to lead to the most freedom? And at one moment, it could be inside, and the next moment, it could be outside. You know, it's dependent on the causes and conditions that are coming together in every moment. And that's what we want to empower you with, is more and more wisdom for you to be able to choose and not to just go with the dominant perspective, because the dominant perspective is often based in delusion. And I'm sorry about that, but that is the, that's, the, that's the reality of what we live in. Are you following me here? Is this making sense? Yeah. So I really, I mean, I feel very passionate about this, that we are giving you a tool or, and empowering with this tool that is, is so revolutionary and so powerful. And I, I tr- like, there's a sense of like urgency in me in giving this talk that like, I want you to have the skill to be able to make choices that are going to make the world a more beautiful place that I know is possible, that we all know is possible. And then, you know, that's like a big vision. And then bringing it back to like, am I going to sit in here or sit out here? Like, it seems like a small thing, but it's not because you're training in, like in these small choices over and over again here or working through the situation in your life that's happening right now as you work through that, it's like you're training in the capacity, you know, as things get more complex over, you know, get more complex over the coming years, as I think many of us sense they are going to be. All right, so um, I'll talk in the morning particularly about working with emotions. And uh, yeah, I'll talk in the morning particularly about working with emotions. Let me just see if there's anything else to say. I know what I'll read you. So one of our teachers on our teacher's council, I didn't talk a lot about Prajnaparamita. One of our teachers on our teacher's council, Tanisara, has written this beautiful poem on Prajnaparamita. Um, Savin, you've heard this many times. The Lost Coast with me, so apologize for that. All right, so Prajnaparamita talked about mother of the Buddha. She's this goddess of wisdom that is, um, is that, is that, that sword, you know, any moment that we find, we think we found the answer, she'll pull the rug out from under us. And, um, yeah. So it's like, and how I also relate to her is she's the one who gives us the feedback. So there's, there's a certain courage in it. Like, so we make a decision and we make the decision, like you go for it, right? You, 
assess based on wisdom. And then you get feedback from the world and have to incorporate that feedback. And it, I feel like it's Prajna, in my cosmology, it's Prajna Paramita who's giving me that feedback. It's like this benevolent mother who doesn't always feel that benevolent. <laughs> Sometimes the feedback I get is not the feedback that I wanted. But there's ultimately a deep benevolence in it and a sort of like warrior training. So her, her, uh, her mantra is gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhisvaha. Gate gate means gone, gone. Para sam gate means gone beyond. Bodhisvaha means gone completely beyond. So it's this gone completely beyond the duality, gone completely beyond the fixation and really surrendering into this tender, open heart that's beyond duality that's beyond male female yeah just beyond duality so here's this poem from tanisra earth dust walkers together through the tangle we stumble to return wild shamanic power of the heart pure peace pulse earth dust walkers together through the tangle we stumble to return wild shamanic power of the heart pure peace pulse in the quiet release of identification from the fired and wired off sync brain merged with the machine prajna intuitive intelligence of the deep rewires in the quiet release of identification from the fired and wired off-sync brain merged with the machine, prajna intuitive intelligence of the deep rewires. She pours living truth into us and leads our way home. True heart home, soft heart home, destroyer of negativity heart, Remover of sorrow heart, joy and laughter heart, sublime intelligence heart, crazy wisdom heart. Gate, gate, paragate, matrix of creation, empty of all distinctions. Your true heart hears all beings, their beginnings and their ends. Your true heart is not the seer or the seen, and it is both. Your true heart is not the seer or the seen, and it is both. Just this. Parasamgate bodhisvaha. Everything now means nothing except how much you reclaim your human that loves your life, your earth, your all other living beings. Everything now means nothing except how much you reclaim your life because this is the moment you've been waiting for, the moment for wild prayer. Sit your ground, stand your truth, and should you be brave, then howl out to the far corners of the walls until the force of our sound together demolishes every carefully positioned brick. Let's sit for a moment. Because this is the moment you've been waiting for, the moment for wild prayer. Sit your ground, stake your truth, and should you be brave, 
then howl out to the far corners of the walls until the force of our sound together demolishes every carefully positioned brick. Thank you for your care and attention and deep listening. Really appreciate it. <laughs>